Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 331, Dr. Joshua Sijuwadi on the Metaphysics of Monarchical Trinitarianism. In this episode, Dr. Sijuwadi and I discuss his recent article called Monarchical Trinitarianism, a Metaphysical Proposal. In this piece, he starts with the kind of, quote, monarchical Trinitarianism, which we discussed in episode 330, and he develops the model a bit using some metaphysical ideas from the late metaphysician E.J. Lowe. Dr. Sijuwadi detects a problem of compatibility between the undeveloped theory and the Nicene claim that there is only one usia between the Father, Son, and Spirit. A more developed model, he suggests, can get around that sort of problem. And as we explore these themes, I suggest that the model faces a more fundamental and more serious problem. So grab yourself a coffee or tea, because this episode's going to get a bit metaphysical. Dr. Sijuwadi, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you, Dale. Again, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. So you had another very interesting recent article published in 2021 in the fine online analytic theology journal called Theologica, which is based in Europe. And your piece is called Monarchical Trinitarianism, a Metaphysical Proposal. Just in the crudest possible terms, it seems to me that, and I think you said in the previous episode that for a good while you held to a kind of a Swinburnian social Trinitarian theology And in this one, you're trying to take some insights from social Trinitarian views and apply it to this monarchical Trinitarianism. Is that a fair, very rough intro? Yes, that's exactly it. Swinburne has played a massive influence in my theological thinking and formation. Um, So I have a lot of the time followed his path, but sort of in my PhD research, I just fell in love with the monarchical position But I believe that, as I was writing this, that actually aspects of the monarchical position were underdeveloped. And so it could serve well to utilize some aspects of Swinburne's social Trinitarianism to further illuminate the doctrine itself and place sort of the doctrine in a more metaphysically grounded foundation than it sort of is at the moment. So what you focus on for quite a lot of the paper is what you call the multiple natures problem So why don't you explain to us what the problem is, and then eventually we'll get around to your solution. What I sort of see to be problematic is not monarchical Trinitarianism as it's been proposed by John Baer and Bo Branson, but sort of the modification that I make to the model faces certain problems. Because what I see the model as it sort of was stated in the previous episode and and as I wrote in the paper, to be one that has these three entities existing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and one of these entities is numerically identical to God, and that is the Father. So there's one God because there's one Father. But then I felt that this model as it stands is metaphysically underdeveloped because someone could ask questions about, well, what's the nature of these entities? I mean, what are they? Are they, for example, Leftovian life streams? So Brian Leftow's understanding of the Trinity. Are they they life streams of God? 
Are they Bartian modes? So Karl Barth's sort of understanding of modes of being, are they them? Or are they persons like us? Are they persons in the modern sense of the word? And I believe that Bear and Branson hadn't really fleshed this out and said, actually, these are what they are. And so I decided to take this upon myself to utilize some elements of social Trinitarianism, specifically Swinburne's, and then to apply them to this monarchical model to further illuminate the nature of these entities. And so what I then said was, taking into account this social Trinitarian strand that I've brought in, we're going to take these entities to be three persons in the modern sense of the word. And we're also going to take these entities to instantiate the one divine nature, which is taken to be a universal. So they are equally God, God in the secondary predicative sense of the word, because they each instantiate the universal of divinity. And so that was sort of my modification to the model as it was sort of at the beginning of the paper. And then given that modification that I made, I believe that there was a problem that needed to be faced. Specifically, it was this multiple natures problem, which has been highlighted in some sort of nucleus form by Timothy Paul in a great paper that he wrote for Theological as well, where it's sort of the idea that if you hold to there being an instantiation relation between the persons of the Trinity and the universal of divinity, so the divine nature, you seem to have multiple natures in the Trinity. Because as Paul brings out an example, he says, and I quote, when my daughters Mary, Beatrice, Edith, and Agnes each instantiate the universal humanity and each has proper characteristics such that we don't confuse them, what we have there are four humans, not a single human. And so what he was trying to say here is that when you have universals in play here, and you have this instantiation relation here, in a human context, we will never go and say, well, because there is, you know, there's a universal that's shared between them, there is only one human there. We wouldn't right. say that. Yep. We would say, because they each instantiate this universal, there seems to be at least three to four humans or whatever there. But then when it comes to sort of a divine case, when we're counting divinity and God and all those sort of things, we seem to always say, well, there's one divinity, one God here but they each instantiate this divinity. And so it doesn't seem to fit with what we'll normally take to be in the general case to be so when we count. And so we seem to count one in the theistic case, but in a human case, we'll count four. And that doesn't seem to be correct. And so if we are going correct here, and we say there's an instantiation relation between the persons and the universal of divinity, then there seems to be three divinities there. Three gods, yeah. Yeah, three gods or three... Yeah. And it's clear from my previous conversations with you and, and reading your work that you want to hold to a very traditional concept of essence where it's a kind essence. It, it's because the individual has that, that it's a thing of a certain kind. So it's because this individual has the essence, humanity, that she is a human. And so yeah. you've clearly staked your claim on the three self side of Trinity theories and against the one self theories, as I call them, because you have three different things. I mean, a person is a being. It's not just a mode or a personality or an aspect. You've got three beings, the Father, Son, and Spirit, but each one seems to have, you know, just whatever it takes to be a God. That's what it is to have the divine essence or nature, right? And so it looks like three gods. Yes. Yeah, so I, um, in this specific paper and the other one as well, I would always say, Yes, I mean, if we're talking about gods, um, we would always need to precisify what our usage of it and the sense that we're sort of using it. So I would say yes, definitely in the predicative sense, there are three gods. In the nominal sense, no, 
because there's only one ultimate fundamental thing. But there are three entities that are predicated God. And I think we will have to say that because the son is called God because he has a divine nature. The spirit is and the father is as well. And so that's why I would say, yes, there are three gods in that sense. But I would, and I don't go this into this paper, but I would say monotheism is to do again with the nominal sense. It's not to do with the predicative sense. So even if we have these three gods, that is not the relevant one for our counting for monotheism. I think our counting for monotheism is to say, how many ultimates do we have in our worldview? Do we have one or do we have three? I'm clearly trying to say because of this understanding of the Trinity, we have one ultimate thing, the Father. And so monotheism is relevant to that, even though there are three gods. I mean, in a manner of speaking, you're saying that monotheism doesn't depend on how many gods there are. Although we usually put it in terms of quote gods, like how many things the word refers to. But go back to the human case. If an individual has human nature, yes, you could say it's because of that. That does imply that that she can be referred to as a human. The term human therefore applies to her, but that's because having the nature makes her a human. So in the case of the Father, Son, and Spirit, each of these ones has the divine nature, and you're quick to say, yes, and they can be called God, right? But having the nature makes each one a God. It does, yes. Not but a quote again, God. That's another point. Okay, so I mean, if we're saying quote God as predicated as divine, then I have no problem saying quote God, because that's what I'm trying to say. I'm saying they can each be equally predicated as divine. So I don't like, if I'm honest, if I'm explaining this view that I'm proposing, I would only use the word God for the nominal usage because that's the primary sort of sense of the word. And I would just use the word divine instead because it just gets confusing if we say there's only one God uh, in the nominal sense, the Father, but yet there are three gods in the predicative sense. It just sort of gets more complicated. But I, I just put it in the papers because, I mean, I don't want people to go around saying, well, he, he says, you know, you normally hear, oh, Jesus, Jesus is not God or something. Like that. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying Jesus is God, but in a certain sense of that word. And so the most relevant sense for the, the consubstantiality of the persons is them being equally divine. And so there are three divine persons here. There is one God, the Father. And so when you're saying each of them are God, or they have the nature that is necessary and sufficient to be God. I would say yes, but again, taking the view that I'm holding to, it's not the primary sense of that word. The primary sense is as a name, but that's only for the fundamental divine person. So they don't have actually. Yeah, yeah I understand the point about the word God. It, you're making a point about using the word God that follows a New Testament pattern. But, but my point is just that conceptually, a thing which is divine, that just means the same thing as a God. Just like a thing which is human means the same thing as a human. Yeah. So if you're, again, yeah, if you're using God in that way, just, I mean, you're just basically saying that they're divine. If you're saying a God, you're saying a divine entity, then yes, I would say to yes. you, or a deity, a mm -hmm. deity. Yes, I'll say to you. But again, um, Because that's what deity is. It's Godhood. It's that which makes the owner a God. Yes. So I would try and emphasize again that that is not an issue for monotheism because I don't want people, individuals to think, well, this is not monotheistic. Because I would say even, I mean, a lot of New Testament scholarship on sort of monotheism is clearly said, and I think I didn't bring this out in depth in the previous discussion that we had on divine identity view, but I mean, a lot of scholars, Borkham, Hurtado, and other individuals would say, it's quite clear that Jews understood there to be many deities existing. 
and they affirmed even many deities existing. But there was only one amongst those deities who was understood to be Yahweh, who was understood to be, I would say, in sort mm-hmm. of a more contemporary sense, the ultimate thing. Yeah. And so that sort of that is a thing that sort of classed them. Uh, sort of took them away from the yeah. other polytheistic religions. But these angels and so on wouldn't be homoousion with the Father, despite that they are understood as, quote, deities. Yes, yeah, yeah, no, no, I agree with you. I, I'm not arguing this to say that, you know, this view was then grounded upon this uh, this sort of idea of them having loads of deities. I'm just trying to ward off the issue that people would say, well, if you have gods in your worldview, you cannot be monotheistic. I don't think that's so. I think you can have gods in your worldview, yet there needs to be one of those gods who is understood to be God, the God, Hotheos, and that is, in the Trinitarian worldview, the Father. And so I'm just saying even this fits with a Judaic worldview. I'm not saying the Jews, again, held to the consubstantiality of the persons with the Father, but I'm saying it holds with a Judaic worldview that affirmed the existence of other deities, be it that they were perfect or not, angels or not. They affirmed that there were other deities existing. And so Trinitarian would say, yes, there are other deities, you know, that were existing. Specifically, the ones that are important are three perfect deities, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And one of those perfect deities is understood to be Hotheos, who is the God, who is the Father. And so that's what I, I'm just trying to emphasize here. Mm-hmm. When the Trinity's podcast returns, we get on to the arguments of this paper. Turning back to the stream of the argument in the paper, there's this multiple natures problem that I bring out to the model that I've developed and put forward for people to look at. And it seems to be an issue because it's not so much that it makes the model polytheistic. It just seems to go against the homoousios issue, like the homoousion issue that the persons share this one nature. And so if they all have these multiple natures, it doesn't seem to be that they all share this one nature, which I would take the homoousion to be predicated upon. And so if there are multiple natures, I'm not saying this is the polytheistic issue, it just seems to be a homoousion issue. And so I think that needs to be dealt with if we're going to hold, hold to pro-Nicene Trinitarianism. And so I tried to do that in the article by utilizing the metaphysics of Jonathan Lowe, very, very influential metaphysician, passed away, I think it was 2012 or 2013, very sadly. Um, but he's done great work in metaphysics. And specifically, he put forward an onto- ontological framework and system, specifically in a natural sciences context. But I believe that this framework can be utilized in a theistic context and many other contexts as well, because I think it's just very robust. And so in this ontological framework, which he terms the four-category ontology, you have basically four ontological categories that are affirmed to exist. So you have the category of objects. So for example, a table, that'll be an object. You then have the category of kinds. So the table instantiates the kind table. And then you also have another category called attributes. 
this category of attributes is just the category of properties in the normal sense of the word. Now, the interesting thing about this category is that an entity, so specifically an object, does not instantiate attributes. What an attribute does is that an attribute characterizes a kind which is then instantiated by an object. So going with this example of a table, you have the particular object table being an instance of the kind table. And then the kind table is characterized by an attribute, for example, spatiality or brownness. So those attributes are characterizers of the kind and not directly of the object. And so the object then exemplifies this because it is part of the kind or it's an instance of the kind table, which then in turn is characterized by attributes or the attributes that we are speaking about. And then the fourth category, ontological category, is the category of modes. So these are particularized properties. They are not tropes in the sort of the normal, the normal sense of the word, because low does, does not affirm the existence of tropes, because tropes are normally understood to be these independently existing things that can float free of their bearers. Now, he doesn't hold to that. He holds to modes which are similar to tropes in that they are particularized properties, but they are dependent upon the objects that they characterize. So a mode would characterize an object. But a mode is an instance of the category of attributes. So when, hopefully, your listeners, if they read the paper, they would see an ontological square, which is a lot easier sort of to explain when you have it in front of you. And so if you have this square, you have the bottom left objects, the category of objects, and then you have the relation of instantiation connecting it to the category of kinds, which is on the top left. And then you have the relation of characterization, which links kinds to attributes, which is then on the top right. And then you have the category of attributes being linked to the category of modes by the relation of instantiation, which is then on the bottom right. And then you have the category of modes being uh, linked to the category of objects by the relation of characterization. And for those listening, I'll put a picture of this diagram on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Okay, great. And so just with the example, just very quickly, just to help people understand it, you have a table, which is a particular object, is an instance of the kind table. And then the kind table is characterized by brownness. So the attribute of brownness. That attribute of brownness is then instantiated by brownness mode. And then that brownness mode characterizes the object. And so the object does have brownness as a mode, but not as a universal. So it doesn't have it as an attribute, it has it as a mode. And so the important thing, which I'm going to sort of explain in a minute about this whole aspect to do with Trinitarianism, is that an object, as I said before, does not directly instantiate the category of attributes. It does not have attributes um, because it instantiates them. How it's related to an attribute is by the relation of exemplification. But the relation of exemplification in and of itself can be reduced to sort of these two things that you see working in the, the, the framework. And so you have the object exemplifying an attribute in one way by it instantiating a kind, which is then characterized by the attribute. 
And so it exemplifies that attribute by being an instance of the kind, which is then characterized by the attribute. But then the second way that it uh, exemplifies an attribute is by being characterized by a mode, which is then an instance of that attribute. And so you have it having these, an attribute, you know, universal, but it exemplifies it in these two indirect ways. Now, the whole point of sort of utilizing, and I sort of go in quite great depth with this sort of ontological framework is because I believe it can really help with this multiple natures problem that I bring up in the earlier part of the paper. And the way it can do that is by placing the Trinitarian persons within this ontological framework. And so just taking the father as an example. So you have the father, he's a particular object, he's an instance of the kind deity, and then the kind deity is characterized by what I call a divinity attribute. So the attribute of divinity that characterizes the kind, which he's an instance of. And so he exemplifies that in that first way. He exemplifies the divinity attribute in that first way by being an instance of the kind, which is characterized by that attribute. But then he also exemplifies it in another way by having a mode characterize him. So he has a divinity mode that characterizes him, which is then an instance of that attribute as well. And so the way it then helps with our multiple natures problem, and again, the father is just an example for each of the other persons as well. How it helps with the problem um, that we faced is because there is then not multiple natures or divinity attributes in the system. There's only one divinity attribute that characterizes the kind deity. And there's only one divinity attribute that then has an instance of a divinity mode, which then characterizes the father. So you don't have to multiply attributes for each of the persons. It doesn't correspond to the, the number of persons because you only require one divinity attribute to characterize the kind and then be instantiated by a mode. And so you only have one nature there if we are taking the nature to refer to the divinity attribute. And so we then have the homoousion there because the Father, Son, and Spirit each exemplify one divinity attribute. And they do it in those two ways that I've explained. And so that's sort of the way that it deals with the multiple natures problem. Yeah. So you're right on page 20 on this scheme, rather than having three instances of the divinity attribute, which would result in there being three particular natures within the Trinitarian life, we instead have three instances of the kind deity. And then you go on to discuss, well, wait a second, but there's still three divinity modes here. Is that going to be a problem? But um I mean, it seems to me that just once you've got three instances of the kind deity, that just means the same thing as three gods. Go back to the three daughters, okay? There are different views about humanity and what humanity is. So the old school, pure platonic view is that there is only a universal of humanity. And this universal is just wholly present within each daughter. And that is why there are three humans there, because... There are three things there, each of which has this totally universal humanity manifest within it. Now, there are some philosophies of properties where there are only individual properties, but historically, especially in the Middle Ages, you had philosophers and theologians accepting both universal and individual properties. And so Margaret would have her one own humanity, but also there's this universal humanity 
and Mary would have her own individual humanity, but also there's this universal of humanity. So you've got universal property in the scheme, but you also have individual properties in, in addition. And so you might say, well, once you go to the divine case, wouldn't it help if we get rid of the individual instances of deity? And um, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know if that really does help because go back to the pure Platonist. If you're a pure Platonist and you just don't countenance individual essences or individual properties at all, you have only universal properties, then still, if you've got three different things in which of each uh, the universal humanity is manifest, it looks to me like just having those three things with that universal gives you three things of that kind. So doesn't this um, solution still leave that basic problem that we have three instances of the kind deity, even though we've gotten rid of you know the individual deity attributes? Um. Yes, it, I mean, in a way, it does that by affirming exactly like you said that there are three instances of the kind deity. But I would not see that to be problematic in that the specific sort of Trinitarian framework that I'm working within is affirming that there are multiple deities within the um, sort of theistic case, that there are three deities. Um, so that wasn't the problem that I saw because I don't have a problem with there being three deities. The problem that I have is that each, if each of these deities have their own nature, and it seems to be problematic to say that they are consubstantial in a way, that they are homoousios. And so what I say then is that we locate the nature's issue with how many instances of the universal or what I term there, the attributes category. And so I say, well, you only have one attribute because you only require that to characterize the kind deity and so what i would then say is that actually it's quite important what i then do in my later sort of section so where i look at the multiple modes problem because i think that's at the heart of the issue because it, i think exactly like you say i mean we have three humans in let's say you have a human that instantiates a kind humanity and so you have many humans that do that. And so you have many humans within that category. And I see, I see that to be the case. Why I say it's problematic? Um, because I think it's problematic because you have to then say there are particular properties that are possessed by these humans. They are individuals in a way. They are independent in a way because they have their own particularized property. And so I think if we are being coherent on the matter, we need to bring into account the category of modes. So even if individuals didn't do that in the past because they didn't affirm the existence of individualized properties, I think that they just did, but it wasn't clear and they, they weren't clear on the matter because I just can't see how a universal, which is an abstract object, could inhere within a subject and it itself does not have it in a particularized fashion. I think it does. If I have humanity, I have it because I have a particular humanity mode that characterizes me. And that particular humanity mode is an instance of the general category of the humanity attribute category. Well, we'll come, we'll come back to modes in a second. But when you say that, I think you're just saying that the platonic type view about universal only properties just doesn't make any sense to you. Maybe it doesn't. I'm not, I'm not standing up for it. But uh <laughs> I mean, the, the, the creedal homoousion requirement that the father and son are, you know, same usia 
that probably doesn't demand like a specific view about what Usia is, does it? I mean, if one was a nominalist, could one accept that? If one only believed in individual essences, couldn't one believe that? You're saying there's there's got to be universal and individual essences, but in this case, there, we shouldn't think there are also individual essences. I don't know. It seems to me that I don't see how that creedal requirement could demand a very particular philosophy of essences. Yeah, so, okay, specifically, I'll say it's, it's of universals. And so I would say, yes, exactly. The notion of Lucia is not focused on one understanding of, let's say, universals or something like that, or it requires you to affirm the existence of particularized properties. I don't think it does. And it's quite clear in the fourth century, there wasn't a, a clear position on the matter of what actually Lucia even meant. Some people were, mm-hmm. you know, thinking it actually meant a material thing that was broken off from the father and shared with the, the son. And so that was some interpretation. But I, I think it doesn't require one explicitly to hold to a universal sort of system and a mode sort of system. But I would say for coherence, it does. And then secondly, I think there has been good scholarship on the matter that the theologians that played a part in in the councils took the usia that was sort of possessed by the father and shared with the son to be a universal. So, for example, Richard Cross's work on this, I think, is great because he does show the Gregories to show, I think, specifically Gregory of Nyssa and other, I think, if I'm correct, Basil and others to, you know, clearly see this to be a universal that is instantiated or exemplified by each of the persons. And so you see this clearly with Basil and you have this common and particular sort of aspect that he brings in. So I think continued declaration itself, so if we're saying Nicaea or Niceno Constantinopolitan Creed, doesn't explicitly say, well, this consubstantiality has to be understood within this universal-like framework. But I think, you know, the influential theologians held to this being the correct interpretation of the matter. But I would say they obviously didn't bring into account modes particularized properties. But I think for coherence, you need to. So I would say, I mean, low is really, you know, influenced my my thought on this, but you have to have a category of modes, you have to have a category of particularized properties to even hold to universals. I just don't think you can hold to them coherently without it. And so I would say, even though the conciliar declarations didn't say explicitly, I would say for coherence sake, you do need to interpret it in this sort of way. And so then that's why I bring into account these categories. So I would say, yeah, exactly. Explicitly it doesn't, but I would say if you want to hold to it in a cogent manner, I think you need to affirm something like this. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Sijuadi and I discuss another similar metaphysical problem for Nicene Trinitarianism. Okay, so if we get rid of individual instances of divinity, still you write, we have on this low scheme, 
multiple instantiations of the divinity attribute. So explain why that is and why you think that's a problem. So because what you sort of see with the square, you have these four categories. And like I said before, there are different ways for the divinity attribute to exist. It can exist as something which is inhering within the category of the deity kind, or it can be instantiated by divinity mode. Now, if it's instantiated by divinity mode, we then have three divinity modes within the framework that I'm sort of proposing. And so I think then that the issue just then moves along to another problem because, okay, yes, you can say, yes, there's only one divinity attribute that is needed to characterize the kind deity. But then someone could easily say, but yeah, even though there's one attribute, there's three particularized properties of this specific attribute. And so there are three divinity modes, one hand by each of the persons, one that characterizes each of the persons. And so then why can't we just simply then say, instead of multiple natures, you have a sub sort of issue, which is, well, there's multiple modes. And so you then have this human-like case again. Because you will have humans who will have individualized human sort of properties, which we'll call human modes. And so it seems to be the same problem. The problem hasn't really been dealt with. And so what I then say is, well, yes, I do believe that to be the case. I haven't really dealt with the problem in this specific sense. So humanity would be present in Mary in one way, but humanity would be present in Margaret in another way. Yes, exactly. And so I think that, again, just breaks off this homoousion doctrine because you don't have if was instead of saying one divinity attribute, we then have one divinity attribute, we have loads of particularized properties. And so do we really want to then say that they actually have the same nature? I don't think so. They have their own nature independently in and of themselves. And we don't really want that. We want to say that they only have one thing there that they exemplify, attribute and mode. And so I try to show how this could be the case by utilizing another concept and notion found within Lowe's ontology, which is his serious essentialism, which I'm not going to go into great depth because it is quite complex. But in the previous episode, I started talking about essences and things like that. And Lowe is one of the big proponents of this non-modal understanding of essence. So him and Kit Fine have sort of spearheaded this idea. And so with sort of this idea of essence in play here, we have the real definition and notion that I brought in the last episode that we looked at or the previous episode before that, where you have a definition of an entity and that definition expresses the essence of that entity. And so what I then sort of say is that if we take into account this definitional understanding of an entity, we then realize certain things are the case within a Trinitarian context. Because when we define each of the persons, we will recognize something. So, for example, the real definition of the Father, which I state in the paper specifically on page 25, is that to be the Father is to be the uncaused divine person. Now, that's a real definition. I wouldn't say it's the most accurate because there's other things that can be added, but that's a good definition to go on. To be the father is to be the uncaused divine person. Then to be the son is to be the divine person who's caused to exist by the father and the means by which the father causes the spirit to exist. So I just bring in the filioque there. Obviously, some people might not be happy with the filioque, but just sort of going with that. Because also Swinburne, who I utilize to modify this model, does 
um, hold to the filioque. And then um, the spirit is defined as to be the spirit is to be the divine person who's caused to exist by the father through the son. And so we have these definitions here. But then something that we realize is that there is an entity. Again, it could be pro a proposition about that entity, as I spoke about in our previous episode. You have this entity, the father, who features in the real definition of the son and features in the real definition of the spirit. But he does not have any of the other persons featuring in his real definition. And so what that means is that the father is defined as he is, but he does not, and I use the term essential constituent, he doesn't have any essential constituents. The son has an essential constituent, the father and the spirit, and the spirit has an essential constituent or constituents, the father and the son. But the father does not have any of the other persons as constituents of his essence because they do not feature in the real definition of him which expresses the essence. I might have thought a real definition had to only include intrinsic features of a thing or propositions, if you like, that have to do with intrinsic features. But I guess you're saying that that's not so. The essence of the son can, or, sorry, a real definition of the son can contain the father. It wouldn't have to do with intrinsic features of the son only. Yeah, it, it wouldn't. Um, I don't bring into account the notion of intrinsicality. What I work with is in this specific article is the general and individual essence sort of distinction. Um, and I sort of bring that out in the paper, which is laborious to go through, so I probably won't. But I sort of have a, a table on page 25 and 26 that has the general and individual essences of each of the persons. You then have the real definitions, and then you have the essential constituents of them. And so what I'm saying, the real definition expresses the general essence and the individual essence of the persons, this specific one. Now, when I was unpacking Fine in one of our previous episodes, I didn't go into that distinction because Fine doesn't hold to this individual and general essence where he doesn't bring it into account in his framework, but Lowe does. And so the real definition that I was bringing out were something that expresses the general and individual essences of them. And so the son, in his individual essence, has propositions about the father featuring within it. He is, as I say there, caused to exist by the father. And he's the means by which the father causes the spirit to exist. And so those are the things that individualize him. They make him the son because he has those two propositions being true of him. And so that means then that in his real definition, he will have something about the father featuring within him. Now, I would just flag something. Those who would listen to the, the previous episode might think, okay, how does this fit with, you know, the idea that the father has a son existing within his real definition? Because I, as I say in the Borkham paper, the son is understood to be existing within the real definition of the father. Now, I would say there are ways to work around this issue by bringing into account the constitutive and consequentialist notion of essence and I'm not going to define them because it gets really difficult, but I'm just saying for the listeners that there are ways to bring this in, into sort of a coherence play with the previous article. And so what I'm looking at here is something which is to do with individual and general essences, but it can fit with what Fine has said, but I just don't really do that. But I think in later work, I will show it how, how it can be done. But specifically in this paper, I just say that the father does not have the son and the spirit existing within or propositions about him being true 
in the real definitions about him. And so he does not have any ex- essential constituents, but the son and the spirit do. I'm confused by that, though, because doesn't the father necessarily give rise to the son and spirit on your view? Yes. Okay. So that's why I was saying, okay, so this is actually dealt with in a footnote. It's a very long footnote. So it's on page 26 where the table is there as well. And it's a long footnote. But what I do is I do bring into account this constitutive and consequentialist notion of essence. And what I say is technically the father giving rise to the son and the spirit are part of his consequentialist essence but they are not part of his constitutive essence. His constitutive essence are just the basic things that are true about him. His consequentialist essence are just things that are true about him, but they are consequences of the basic things that are true about him. And so why I hold to that is because a basic thing that's true about the father is he's perfectly good. A consequence of his perfect goodness is that he would give rise to the son and the spirit. And so technically he's part of his consequentialist essence. Now, hopefully a paper that will come out in the future showing how it does stem from his perfect goodness. But the whole point here is I'm saying the sort of real definitions that I'm looking at and the general individual essences I'm looking at are to do with the constitutive essences of the persons. And so in the constitutive essence of the father, he does not have the son and spirit and all those sort of things existing as an essential constituent of them. Um, They're part of his consequentialist essence, which I'm not looking at. So what I say is that the individual and general divide can apply to a constitutive essence and it can apply to a consequentialist essence. Now, what I'm just looking at in this article is a constitutive essence. So it is true, and I do affirm that the Son and Spirit do eternally arise from the Father, but that is not to do with his constitutive essence. But And so I do deal with that issue because I did believe that would be an objection raised, um, and I do deal with it in a footnote, and hopefully sufficient for the objection. But if not, anyway, this will be stuff that I will be working on later to further flesh out. But just going with this framework, general individual essence, real definition, essential constituent idea. I then sort of utilize these notions to show something to be the case about modes, because modes are understood in Lowe's framework to be identity dependent upon their bearers. That means a mode exists because it depends upon what that entity is. And so, for example, a redness mode can only exist as my mode, because it is a mode of myself. And so let's say I had, a, you know, I don't know, I'm using red because I'm not red, but let's say we're just going with, okay, for a table, for example. So we have two red tables. They each are characterized by redness modes. Now, one of those table has a redness mode and that redness mode is dependent upon the identity of that table. It's the redness mode of that table. And it's not the redness mode of the second table. And so it's dependent upon the identity of a given entity. If that's so, and that's definitely the case in Lowe's framework, that modes are identity dependent upon their bearers, we seem to then have something to be the case here. Because what I mean by identity, Lowe understands identity to be essence. And so a mode is dependent upon the essence, the individual and general essence of that entity. Now, If the son and the spirit have the father as an essential constituent of their essence, and so their their real definitions, then the question can be raised, whose mode is it? Is it the mode of the father? Is it the mode of the son? Is it the mode of the spirit? 
because the mode is identity dependent upon its bearer. It's dependent upon the essence of that bearer. But as you'll see, well, there's two individuals for the Son and the Spirit that that mode must be dependent upon. And so then you'll have the problem of a mode characterizing more than one bearer, which cannot be the case. And so as a mode can only be, like I said, identity dependent upon one bearer. And so because it's the mode of that specific bearer. And so what you will then have in front of you is the case of a mode becoming a universal-like entity, which obviously can't within this framework, and individuals will not want to affirm that. And so what you will then have to say is that if there's a mode that characterizes the sun and also characterizes the spirit, this mode becomes a universal-like entity that characterizes many bearers and its identity dependent upon more than one bearer, which it cannot be. And so then I then say, well, there has to be two options that one can take because one wouldn't want to hold to this as being correct. And so one can take option A, which is negating the possession of any divinity modes by the Son and the Spirit. So we say, well, because the Son and the Spirit have the Father and each other as essential constituents of them, they cannot have modes. They cannot, they cannot be characterized by a divinity mode because you will have this issue. And so you just negate the existence of any divinity mode here, and you only retain that of the fathers because the father does not have any essential constituent. And so he can have a mode that directly is characterizing him. And so you can take that option in the gate and say there's only one mode, and so you, you deal with the multiple modes problem because there's only one mode there now. But then I say that's an option you can take, but I wouldn't really want to take it given Lowe's framework because Lowe holds to imminence realism where a universal can only exist if it's instantiated by a mode. And so if then the Son and the Spirit do not have a mode characterizing them of divinity, then we cannot say that they actually exemplify the divinity attribute. I do say that they exemplify in that first way by instantiating the kind deity, which is characterized by divinity attribute, but that's not really an important way because it's a, it's more of a dispositional way than an occurrent way. And so we want to hold to them in some way occurrently, that means actually exemplifying that attribute. And so you could take that way, but then you'll just have to go against imminent realism as Lowe understands it. And you can do that, but I wouldn't want to given I do assume this framework. And so I then give option B, which is retaining the divinity modes of the Son and the Spirit. And so someone will say, well, isn't that just then the multiple modes problem that you just spoke about? It isn't, because the way I understand it then is that I further precisify the way in which they are characterized by a divinity mode. What I take to be the case is that the Father is the only divine person who is characterized by a divinity mode directly. The Son and the Spirit are characterized by the Father's divinity mode by him being an essential constituent of them. Because the Father, or propositions you can say are true of him, existing within their essences, their real definitions, they then can have what he has, if you understand what I mean. And so because he has the divinity mode characterizing him directly, because he is part of their essence, they then have his divinity mode in an indirect fashion. So I say they indirectly are characterized by the Father's divinity mode, and he's directly characterized by that divinity mode. Now, this is not an ad hoc move, so I'll ward off that objection, because Lowe does hold to 
the possibility of this type of thing for, he would say, spatially coincidental entities. So, for example, you might have, you know, the famous clay and uh, statue sort of entity. And so what you will have here is that, for example, in this sort of case, you will have, let's say, a weight mode. It seems to be the case that the same weight mode characterizes the clay and characterizes the statue. Let's say they are distinct. Obviously, someone might say they're identical, but let's say they are distinct. You have the same mode characterizing both of those things. And so what you then have is a mode being able to characterize these things, but it only can do that because one of these things, let's say the clay, constitutes the statue. The clay is part of the statue in a way. And so it's a constituent of it. And so that's why it can then have its modes characterizing it. Yeah. So the clay and the statue are supposed to be two very closely related, although numerically distinct things. Yes. But but what I do is I don't say that's you know wholly analogous to the case that I'm showing. What I say is that you can have an essential coincident objects. What I mean by that is you just have an object that has some things residing within its essence. You have some things being an essential constituent of it in an analogous fashion to the way that the clay is a constituent of the, the statue. But Dr. Sijuati, I mean, couldn't you just have three gods that were related in this way where one of them has the divinity mode individually and the other one have their divinity modes through him in some sense? I mean, you, you could, but I don't know why you wouldn't call that Trinitarianism. I, I just think... You could have that case, but I don't think we do have that case outside of Trinitarianism. And so I don't think it to be problematic. And so, yeah, you could have other divine entities do that, but I just think it's done so in the Trinity, given the framework we are working within. And so the essential constituents of the Son and Spirit is the Father. They have each other, but I say that they are not primary constituents. The Father is a primary constituent of the Son and Spirit. And so what he has, the specific mode that characterizes him, can indirectly characterize the Son and the Spirit. And so all that we need to hold to then is there being one mode within this framework, one mode that characterizes the Father, which then indirectly characterizes the Son and the Spirit because he's an essential constituent of them. And so we then have at the end of sort of the article, the position that I reach is that you can have the homoousios here in a specific fashion defined within this framework, specifically in the way that I define it is just that this is on page 37 for those who would read the article. The Father, the Son, and Spirit, each dispositionally and directly or indirectly currently exemplify the one divinity attribute. Now, this dispositional occurrence language, I didn't bring out specifically now, but it's just to say that in the square, they exemplify it in the first way, like I said, by instantiating the kind, which is then characterized by this divinity attribute. And they also exemplify it in the second way by having a mode that characterizes them. But specifically, I say directly or indirectly. So directly the father, indirectly the Son and the Spirit. And so in that sort of homoousios persistification that I perform here, you only need one divinity attribute and you only need one divinity mode for this to work. And so there's only one nature if you take it to be a divinity attribute or you take it to be a divinity mode. You don't need to say there's multiple natures or multiple attributes. You don't need to say that there's multiple modes either. And so what I then sort of reach in a long article and I do pray for those who do read it, <laughs> they'll get through it somehow. I do get to the position that I feel that 
the monarchical sort of model that I then propose with this sort of modification that takes into account social Trinitarianism is a metaphysically robust model, which the previous understanding of monarchical Trinitarianism wasn't. And so we can affirm, which is exactly on page 36, that for the first sort of strand, which I call the social strand, that there are three relationally distinct persons, i.e. pure mental substances within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, each of whom dispositionally and currently exemplifies the one divinity nature, i.e. the same divinity attribute, and thus are each equally termed God in the predicative sense. And then the monarchical strand, the one God in nominal sense is numerically identical to one of the entities, the Father, who is the sole ultimate source of the Son and Spirit. Now, this is a complementary article to the Building the Monarchy of the Father article, which we spoke about in the previous episode. And so these sort of definitions and this monarchical conceptualization need to be brought together. And so the important one for this article is that S strand, where I provide a persistification of the nature of the entities. They're persons, and they exemplify the same divinity attribute, and so can be called God in the predictive sense. And then the previous article is where I work on that M strand, so the understanding of the one God in the nominal sense is numerically identical to the one of the entities, the Father, because he is the fundamental divine person in the Trinity. He is independent and complete, and he grounds the existence of the Son and the Spirit. And so that's sort of the model that I'm proposing in these two articles. And hopefully, somehow I've dealt with some of the issues that can be brought with them. And I look forward you know, to individuals hopefully engaging with it and bringing more objections that I can hopefully deal with. And we can sort of collaboratively work on it if it is seen to be a good model. Well, as you've just heard, it's not an easy piece. So you better have that extra large coffee and uh, buckle up <laughs> for some metaphysical mayhem. But uh, <laughs> we really appreciate your uh, explaining it to us today, Dr. Sijawadi. So thanks for the conversation. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed myself. And yes, thank you. It's a privilege to be on this podcast. So thank you very much. This week's thinking music has been the track Air by Jesse Spillane. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. Every year that I've done the Trinities podcast, I've taken off the month of August. This year, I'm extra busy doing things like helping to organize the first ever Unitarian Christian Alliance Conference, which will be held in the Nashville, Tennessee area, October 15, 16, 17, in 2021. I'm incredibly excited about that event, but as I record this podcast, I don't yet have further details to reveal about it. The way to be the first to know is to get yourself a free membership at UnitarianChristianAlliance.org. If you do that, you'll get an email, and it's that website which will have the registration soon for the conference. Just so you know, there is limited capacity there. Anyway, because I'm so overloaded with other duties, this year I'm taking the unusual step of also taking off July. So this will be the last new episode of the Trinity's podcast until the first Monday of September. In the meantime, there's a massive back catalog you can catch up on, and I'll post at trinities.org some of my recent interview interactions, particularly with Muslim audiences.
If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.